Hi, everyone, and welcome to Resilient People. I'm your host, Janet Fanaki. I'm so glad that you're here. It's been a while since I sat at the microphone. Many of you have been wondering if that was it, but nope. I'm back to bring you more stories of resilience from regular people. But I needed to take a break from recording for two big reasons. A lot's happened over the last few months. My daughter Isabel left for a job teaching English in Japan for the year, so that took a lot of preparation. Mostly me, as a mom, wrapping my head around the idea that she'd be living so far away and not coming home. But with all of her diligent research, preparation, and calm personality, she settled in nicely, met some fabulous friends, and has been enjoying her life there a lot. Talk about resilience. Another thing that had my focus was my 87-year-old dad, who had been living with serious health complications for a number of years, and everything was coming to a head over the last few months. He passed away peacefully in mid-May, a life filled with many adventures and always a smile on his face. I know that he's in a better place and reconnecting with the people that he's been missing for a long time. Having this point of view has really helped me to feel okay in his absence. Now, I want to tell you a bit about the guests that you'll be hearing about in this episode. It's one from the archives that hadn't made it to the podcast. Sean O'Gorman is an author, motivational speaker, creator of the Strong Life Project, a father and a former police officer in Queensland, Australia. It was a difficult profession for Sean where he witnessed the horrific events and drama of day-to-day life. He struggled for a long time with PTSD, attempted suicide, and eventually left the police force. Sean speaks to audiences, police academies, military, first responders, athletes, and schools about his struggles, and his goal is to help people to cope with life's hardships and build resilience. So without further delay, here's my conversation with Sean O'Gorman. Hi, Sean. Hi, Janet. How are you going? I'm really good, thank you. Thank you so much for reaching out to me on the website. Tell me about your life growing up in a police family. Yeah, so my dad um, was a police officer here in Queensland, in Australia. He was 42 years in the police. He ran our police union at one point, like the Association to Look After Members. Super passionate guy about policing. He was a very, uh, I was born in 1970, so he was, you know, a cop 70s in the 80s, and he was, he was pretty uh, amazing at that. So he was second most decorated cop for bravery in Australia at one point. So he did some pretty amazing things. And so I grew up just worshipping my dad, he was like my hero, and also just realising that I wanted to do something like he did that had a significant impact that really helped people. And... Unfortunately, the other side of that for him was we weren't that connected in the sense that he was working a lot. The impact of the job on him, similarly to me, which I didn't realise at the time, that he, similar to me, was diagnosed with PTSD after he left the police. But a lot of that had me understand as I got older through my career that the impact is real on cops and not a lot of people really talk about it. The, uh, so I was, I think, six years of age when I remember the first thing the police canine unit at an open day for the police academy where we live. And I was 60 years of age and thought, that's what I want to do. That was my lifelong goal. So joined the police at 19, got into the canine unit at 22 and loved it. 
and thought that would be where my life, where I'm at my happiest, my life would feel fulfilled. And I did for a short period. But then even after I was in there for a short amount of time, I was like, that's not enough either. And I'd work harder and harder and harder in the police and the canine unit. It's first response policing at its best, if you like. So canine officers go to all of the most violent and the most difficult jobs and don't do paperwork, don't make arrests. So they will catch uh, suspects and offenders and hand them over to other police and then move to the next job. So I would often be doing six, seven, eight violent jobs in one eight-hour shift. So that might be, you know, domestic violence, armed robberies, uh, big fights, car chases. So and often chasing offenders who are armed with firearms, with guns through the bush or through suburbia in the middle of the night on your own because with the German Shepherd, you obviously get, well, German Shepherd dogs, so you get used to following them at a real pace. They're running quite quickly. And you take uniform officers with you as backup, but often lose them because you don't run with a torch, so people can't see you and you're not a target. So it's a very lonely job. You work on your own. You don't have a partner other than the dog. And they can't speak back to you, obviously. If they do, there's, you've got more issues than, uh, than you probably think. So it can be quite isolating. So but a lot of the things that I saw really impacted me, I think, more dramatically because you don't debrief naturally in conversation with a partner as you drive around in a patrol car. So Let me just ask you, Sean, what prepares you for that kind of a job? Uh, I think, Janet, the answer is nothing because it's something that you can't, and especially when you go back to when I joined in 1989, I think it's getting better now, and that's my whole purpose and drive to try and help educate police, military, and then general public. Unless you're doing the work in your life to prepare yourself for it in a physiological, physical sense with sleep and nutrition and training and meditation and all of those sort of things, then the physiological response of the stress will be immense and will impact your life. But from the point of view of what cops and military the same see, and paramedics, firefighters, all of those first response jobs, I don't think you can prepare. Because as human beings, we can talk about impacts, we can, and we never used to. I think police departments and all of those services do more so now. But for me at my at the tender age of 19, and with my dad, who was like just a hero cop, I'd always hear his stories about, you know, car chases and, you know, shootouts and all of these things. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. And he had a great mask where he appeared as though it didn't affect him. There was other things in his life that didn't work, like he's been married three times and uh, him and I, like I'd see him every two weeks. Mum and dad got divorced when I was 12. He was at work a lot, but I just thought it's because he was, loved what he did. I think in hindsight, a lot of it was probably that's the, most, the place he was the most comfortable. Because when you're out, you know, on the, on the thin blue line saving people and helping people, it's, you get a lot of attention. People love you in a, in, in a sense, and especially in that era. When you're at home and you're just a normal guy or the normal girl, then you're very vulnerable and open and emotional to having to deal with normal life stuff. And when the impact of a lot of the stuff you see in the police is there, I think that can become quite overwhelming for police officers, soldiers, and hence the reason we have so much divorce and estrangement with kids, etc. So the only way to prepare it really is these conversations, is if police officers who've been through what I went through, and you but I was li- I lie, lay in bed three nights in a row with the Glock, my Glock pistol going in my life. I stood on the outside of a 24th floor balcony uh, at a party on the Gold Coast here in Australia and was going to jump. And all of those things were because I was too scared to ask for help. So I don't think police can prepare themselves. 
because you have to see and experience the things to understand the things. And I think with the advent of YouTube and social media and all of those things, I think it's probably easier because anybody can Google police shootout or something and understand just how terrifying and impactful that job is. But still, until you're walking in those shoes, you can't really understand it. So you touched a little bit about your dad and your relationship with him. And I'm just curious, we don't think of police officers as being vulnerable people. Yeah. You know, they're, they're made out to be strong and they can take anything on. And, you know, so I'm just wondering when you were feeling really vulnerable and maybe having a hard time because you were young, you know, 19, 20, like you said, 22 is still a kid. Um, yeah. Were you able to talk to anybody at home out of your family, especially people who've gone through the years of being police officers? Yeah, no, not at all. And because our family, so my dad's got uh, 15, 15 kids in his, or 15 siblings. So it was wow. a good Irish, Catholic, good Irish Catholic family. So we were the good Irish Catholics. Um, my grandfather served in World War II in Papua New Guinea for five years. And my grandmother, they're both beautiful people. She was abandoned to the convent, to the Catholic convent when she was three because she was born out of wedlock in the you know, very early 19, probably 10th in the 1910s, teens. So they, my uncle, who was the assistant commissioner of the police was the oldest, Dab is, is fifth, I think. So that sort of generation, that good Irish Catholic family, a lot of that epigenetic behavioural thing, just don't talk about feelings. Mm. Don't talk about emotion. Don't air your dirty laundry, and especially as men. And it's one of the big things I'm driving towards now is I'm actually just filming, oh, sorry, just editing at the moment about to launch an alpha male course, an online education course for men. Mm. And the reason I'm doing that, Janet, is for exactly this conversation, right? So my dad, I love to death. He's a great guy. We're still not super close. And for him, I think part of that was his childhood, like his situation. He was nine years of age working on a horse and cart delivering bread to generate money for their family. And he's a super giving guy and an amazing human. But I think a lot of the, his own challenges and struggles in his life, he had nobody to talk to. Nobody helped him process it. So then how is he able to do the same thing for me? My mum, the same thing, a good Irish Catholic family, her own story, probably not as, not as dramatic, but still similar. So you're like, they, mum and dad never, we never had those relationships where we talked openly and emotionally, vulnerably about things. I didn't know that was a thing, to be, to be honest. So when I started being challenged and struggling with things, I thought I was just broken. And everybody else around me, my parents, my family, my friends, the other cops, all wore them what I call a mask. So they had the great mask on where they could pretend, where we all pretend that we're really happy and that everything's great. So when you walk out in, into the world and you see people other than your immediate family who see the worst of us because they see us at our true, the true essence of our struggle, then you walk out the door and see other people and they're like, how are you? Yeah, great, really good. So we're never encouraged. We don't encourage kids to be open and be emotionally vulnerable. For boys, it certainly used to be, and I think still is, don't, boys don't cry, harden up, toughen up, princess. So it never even crossed my mind as I was being challenged by things to talk about. Uh, why don't you touch a little bit about when things were at their worst? Sure. So I got to the point, uh, I was on 
I left, I was in Canada for nine years total. After seven years, I left and went to covert surveillance, which is like undercover operations. Okay. So, you know, sort of grew my hair a bit and we'd do covert. So I wasn't actually an undercover agent. I was a covert surveillance operative, which meant you, you follow people and you know, covertly record what they're doing with drug dealers or outlaw motorcycle gang members, organised crime syndicates, and you're tasked with the protection of the covert agents. And I went there because it's a lot slower a pace in the sense you might sit for four or five hours in a vehicle watching a place waiting for someone to turn up. So it's not the, not the constant action, which I loved, but I got to the point where I was getting more and more affected and I was getting more complaints of assault on, on offenders that I caught. And it wasn't because I was heavy handed, but it was because I was very willing to engage in violence if it was available. So simple, simple things. And this probably explains to me the changes in behaviour. And for, for your audience that listen, whether they're police officers or not, it's to, it's to identify the changes in our behaviour that then indicate that we've got something that's really significantly impacting us. So I went to a supermarket one day with my now ex-wife, my, my daughter's mum, and very long story short, I was pretty stressed about you know, things in my life. I was at the covert unit. We went to go grocery shopping. I didn't want to be there because there was, it's full of people and I wasn't a huge fan of people at that point in my life. So because of what you see as a police officer and walking into the first aisle, um, there was a gentleman who looked like an outlaw motorcycle gang member, walked in the other end as I walked in one end and in the supermarket grocery store. And as we were walking towards each other, he just had a really, a pretty bully sort of uh, energy. And as I looked at him, I immediately just started to bristle. And there was two or three women in that aisle and he just walked straight at them and they had to get out of his way. And you could see he felt like a bit of a tough guy. So I immediately took offence to that and he could see that. So we passed each other three or four times in the aisles as you do in the supermarket. And it just started, I could feel it escalating. And so could he obviously. And we're both trying to be look our biggest and toughest. It was pretty silly really. And got to the point where we walked into an aisle on our own and my wife had, moved, had gone down two other aisles on her own. So him and I walked into this aisle on our own and you just tell there was, there was going to be some trouble. So we walked towards each other. He got to me and I was standing and walking towards him in the middle of the aisle because I figured when he got to me, he would have to either like blade himself to me and, and submit or would there be a conflict? Because in my mind, I thought it's my job to stand between these sort of people and decent people. And the fact that he felt it's okay to walk towards these women and them have to get out of his way. I just didn't, it's just not okay with me as a man and as a police officer. So anyway, he walks to me, blades himself and we get nearly nose to nose. And he says to me, he said, what are you looking at? C word. And I didn't say a word. I grabbed him by the throat and smashed him into these shells, wherever the cereal boxes were. And, and had some very, a, a very choice conversation with him about his attitude and what I was going to do to him. And, and only for about three seconds. And then he gave up. Oh, I'm sorry, sir. I'm sorry, sir. And just folded. Which made me more angry because I thought you really are the essence of a bully where you will walk towards women so they're scared of you. But when another man, you know, confronts you, you, you go to water, which even frustrated me more. So I, so I let him go and I said, get out of here. And he started walking down the aisle. And then I said, you better effing run out. And he ran, ran down the aisle through the through the the checkout and ran out onto the street. And I went back to my wife. I picked up my cereal box, went back to my breakfast cereal, went back to my <laughs> wife and uh, didn't say a word. 
she said, what are you doing? I was just getting cereal. And I was back to normal. Wow. So I'd gone from that level to that level and back down. So for people who might listen to this, you know, I've gone from 9.7 to 10 and back to 9.7 on my anger scale because I was always at that heightened level. Mm. And that was probably one of the indicative points in hindsight. I didn't see it at the time. Uh, that I should have realised that things weren't going well. When I was at work and, you know, I would go to every violent job I could find, which I always had, because that was my job and that's what I wanted to do. And the more I felt at my best when I was going, you know, lights and sirens a million miles an hour going to try and help people because that's why I joined the police. And then I got to the point where I just didn't want to go to work. I wasn't sleeping well. I didn't want to put my uniform on. I went back to the canine unit in the city I'm in, which is probably two and a half million people. I went back to the most violent area there was in the canine unit. So it was worse than it had been before. And I just worked harder and worked harder and worked harder as it got worse. And the suicidal thoughts were really strong. And I just thought that I was too soft or too weak to do, to be a police officer. Mm. And that I struggled massively because it was my whole identity. It's all I wanted to do for my whole life. I would go to work on my days off. I was just a stereotypical bad 80s movie cop in one way, you know, like just uh, <laughs> obsessed by policing. And when the impact started coming really hard, Janet, I really just didn't see it. I just buried it. I drank more alcohol. I worked harder. I just ignored it. So similar, I say like that PTSD or depression, whatever for police, military, first responders is like an injury. It's a mental injury. I don't like the mental illness or mental, mental health condition because I go and say, it's an injury as a result of the work you do. So if I got shot, that would be an injury. This is the similar thing, just the impact is mental and emotional, not physical. But we're too scared to talk about it because of that fear of looking weak. Mm-hmm. And it's just crazy. And that's why in Australia, and I'm so sure Canada and the States is the same thing. Our suicide rate is double what the road toll is. So double the amount of people who die in traffic accidents die from their own hand in our country. Mm. And I'm sure the stats will be exactly the same for you guys. Mm. And that's because men and women are terrified to be vulnerable and actually speak up. And 75% of the people who end their life are men. 65% of people who attempt suicide are women. So to me, it's that. It's not a gender-specific problem. It's not a police problem. It's a societal problem where we're not, we're not giving each other the comfort to speak openly and be vulnerable. And that's where the biggest impact came for me, knowing that, sorry, thinking that if I put my hand up, people would judge me. I now realise in those days, I probably still would have. But these days, writing my book, the work I do, videos every day, podcasts, I have no secrets. All of my darkest secrets are out in the world. Doing these interviews I love doesn't, doesn't concern me in the slightest. And like I said to you on email, there's no off-limit topics. I'm an open book. And the, the irony is where I struggled the most of my life was terrified people would judge me. Now that I've put all of my deeper secrets out in the world, I don't care. There's, a real, there's actually a real um, benefit and freedom in not having any secrets to hide. Well, I think it ends up um, yielding the opposite result. You end up not putting people away. Because I think as soon as you kind of let your guard down and you let people know exactly what you're going through, it may not necessarily be how you're feeling, but whatever you're going through, your experience, yep. then people will identify with that and say, 
I get what you're going through. Guess what? I'm going through something similar. I know somebody, you know, so it's, um, yeah, I think the opposite effect ends up happening. I want to touch on the, um, the PTSD and the suicide because you started uh, talking about that a little bit. And I'd like to know where that kind of played into your story. It's a term I'd like to throw away and I'd like to throw it away only for one reason, because it's so broad based. So PTSD, could, can be from a traffic accident, can be from, from um, childhood sexual abuse, can be from policing, military, whatever. I think it probably would have been fairly early in my police career that where I was first impacted with post-traumatic stress, not necessarily PTSD as a diagnosable form, but a post-traumatic stress of an event. Like I was in my first year or just out of my first year when, you know, there was, we'd been to a lot of violent jobs, but there was a vehicle pursuit with a guy in a truck, a four drive, who had, um, and so I said, done a lot of armed robberies and was very, very well, uh, very violent. And we caught, caught, I caught him with some other police after a, about a 30 minute pursuit and ran up to the car and was dragging him out through the window of the driver's window of the vehicle. And he was reaching back in for a semi automatic weapon that he'd made, a rifle, an SKS rifle that he had tricked up to be a machine gun, essentially, with 30 rounds in it. And the only reason he couldn't pull that out was it got caught on the park brake lever. So the strap got caught and he couldn't get it out. So we didn't know. We pulled him out, didn't know that, got a phone call back at the, at the jail and was said, hey, you better make sure you search him well because that was in the car and this is what we found. Now, that was, that was a fairly regular occurrence, those sort of things. So I'm sure even as a 20-year-old that impacted me, but I just was so full of adrenaline and and I love my job and I just, that's all I wanted to do. I didn't recognise the signs where I was getting angrier. And the PTSD stuff for me was more anger. The whole boys club thing, so I was drinking a lot. Um, I was still training hard. But it's not recognising the change in my behaviour where my, I remember my mum saying to me, when I was probably only two years into the police. And because mum and dad got divorced, she'd been married to dad, obviously she was hyper aware of the impact and not probably even consciously. But she said to me when I was maybe 21, so still a kid, and she said, hey, mate, I'm really worried that the job is changing you, police is changing you. And police officers call it the job. So it's, it's you know, because it's the job to us. It's the only thing to do. And she said, I think the job's changing you. And I said, what are you talking about? She goes, well, you seem more angry and you seem more distant and you're really um, pretty cynical about people and you know I was 21 and I was like well of course I am I said what do you expect like the people I deal with and blah blah you know so I was so she was telling me and I was like yeah and it was almost I was almost proud of it Mm -hmm. because I was like there's an arrogance in it for me at that age of 21 going well I'm doing shit no one else can do and I do it faster and harder than anyone else around me in my opinion that's not necessarily even true but I certainly worked super hard. And even as I've been back into the police now doing a lot of work with them, that's still the reputation that the guys I work with have had of me. And that's not my ego saying that. It challenges me to say that. But the PTSD was, I didn't even know about it. I didn't even know that was a thing for police. I'd never even heard of it. I'd only heard of PTSD for Vietnam veterans. Mm. And there was no way that I could, could have or would have associated doing you know, urban policing with crawling through tunnels in Vietnam, fighting the Viet Cong, you know, that just obviously wasn't something that I would be so arrogant as to think would be a similar impact. But it really affected my relationships 
with women, like romantic relationships, friendships. I got to the point where I only had cops as friends and I only had cops who were like me. So if they were fairly brash, a million miles an hour, kicking the door cops, I was friends with them. If they weren't, I didn't want anything to do with them. Mm. And that was, part of, that was part of the impact. Because what ends up happening is not recognising the impact on me of PTSD, I surround myself with other morons who <laughs> behave exactly the same way. So you feed off each other. So like nobody's saying, hey, Sean, with the guy in the supermarket, nobody's saying to me, hey, Sean, you're getting angrier and I think that's an impact of mental trauma or injury. Maybe we should have a look at that and you should talk to someone. Were you think, married at the time? No, so I, was, I didn't get married until after I left the police. Oh, okay. So, and the difficulty was I left the police at 32. I met my partner who became my wife at 29 mm-hmm. when I was in the midst of this. Mm-hmm. So as I say, I shouldn't have been choosing pizza toppings let alone lifelong partners at the mental and emotional state I was in. And she's, she, like her and I still have quite a challenging relationship, but she's a great mum and loves my daughters to death and is actually a good person. Her and I together just didn't work. Mm. And there, there was, and I don't speak very much about the girls, my amount of respect to her or, and, and, or speak about them out of respect to them. They didn't choose to put their lives out in, in the world. But... But she, as we all do, has had like had some challenges in her life with family, different things. And I think we just had a perfect pattern where I was a guy who presented as a super tough alpha male sort of guy. She was a woman who was looking for somebody who was a protector. Mm. And But we both had our insecurities that when you get in and actually see the real version of each other, not the version that we all these days put online on dating websites or the version in, in our era that you when, you when you meet in a bar and you, you're giving people your best first impression... When we got to the, down into the bones of it, it was really quite dysfunctional from the beginning. We had a lot of conflict. We would argue a lot. And people say, well, isn't it normal to argue? And I go, well, is it? I don't think it is. Mm-hmm. I think it's normal to have robust discussions and it's normal to have difference of opinions. But when it gener- degenerates to the point of raised voices, disrespectful comments and personal attacks, that's not okay. Yeah. So that was sort of our basis, the foundation. And then... When I looked around at everybody else I knew, that was everybody's relationship. Mm. So it didn't seem out of the ordinary either. Right. Where did you get support? Yeah, for sure. And this is the part I really love talking about, right? Because this is, if, this is where people get some benefit. The bottom line is I didn't cope. I didn't deal with it. I dealt with it with alcohol. Uh, and I wasn't an alcoholic by any means, but I certainly self-medicated. Then... The biggest challenge for me was as I left the police was just my loss of identity, my loss of who I was as a man, as a person. My loss of ability to have an impact was huge for me because I thought I just can't go and sit in an office and do an office job like a normal person. That just was something that I just I couldn't imagine. Where my support came from really in those early years was I had one, I had two, so three friends, One who I spoke to this morning, who's still a very good mate of mine, who recently retired from the police a couple of years ago and is having his own challenges. And I love him. He's like a brother to me. I had another guy who is also an ex-police officer now who went through similar challenges, who was and is like a brother to me. Those two guys were really helpful. There was a third guy who went through the same thing. Um, And we trained. We hit the gym a lot together. So I had nine months on sick leave, stress leave. So I didn't work. So we went, we hit the gym together a lot. We drank a lot together. I drank a lot with my covert 
um, police mates because they it wasn't like cops like they they look like drug dealers and it looked look like police and we don't we didn't talk about pol normal policing stuff much and the third guy who was best man in my wedding my best friend i haven't spoken to now in probably five or six years because my assessment of him is when we left the police he just dove into another career doing the same thing and we ended up doing the same job in commercial real estate like property development and i always joke and say i met more psychopaths doing that than i did in the police <laughs> that uh, we went into that together and I ended up, my daughter was born in 2005. In 2002, I left the police. In that intervening period, I did a little bit of personal development. I did a Dale Carnegie sales course, which was probably my first look into personal development and that you could be different. And I was so challenged by that. There was role playing and things about sales and I hated it. But I think that sort of opened the door a little bit for me. I spent the next three years of personal development. So there's a thing called Landmark Education. So I went and did the Landmark Forum, sat in a room with 300 people talking about their feelings, hated every second of it. Uh, you know, they go talk to the people next to you, hug each other, high five each other. And I just wanted to punch everyone that was near me because I was so scared and so vulnerable. But I did all of that. I did like probably a year and a half of four hours, one night a week of what they call like a mentoring program that I hated talking about emotional vulnerability and resilience. And, and I went to another city away from where I live, Sydney in Australia, and did an advanced weekend. So I did all these things. I did a seven day silent retreat that my auntie runs, who's a uh, ex Catholic nun who dealt with childhood sexual abuse herself and all sorts of other stuff. They run this silent retreat called Healing Life's Hurts, which was all about emotions and journaling and I hated every minute of that as well. I went and saw kinesiologists and hypnotherapists and acupuncturists and any caftan wearing hippie that would burn incense in a room I would go and see because I was like, the traditional form of medicine wasn't working for me. I didn't want to be medicated. The solution for me for PTSD and depression wasn't live the next 60 years of my life as a dumbed down version of myself with medication or to be had multiple broken marriages and, and estranged children wasn't an option. And my second daughter was born in 2008. And that really solidified and kicked me into, into even another gear. Because by that stage, I, I knew my marriage wasn't going to last. So I vividly remember when we fell pregnant with my second daughter, I thought, well, now my first daughter will have a sibling when they go through that family breakdown, which was horrific to think, but that was just reality. And I'm a super practical person once I set my mind to something. So I still tried everything I could and all of the personal development stuff was initially based to try and save my marriage. It wasn't about PTSD or depression. Mm. And then I got to the point that I realized it was having such a positive effect, but it wasn't helping our marriage. It was probably making it worse because I was turning into a different person and we literally grew apart. And so the, I became, I'm a very obsessive, addictive personality and I just became obsessed, obsessed and addicted to personal development. I still am. And so that's then like the last 14, 15 years where that's really been my primary focus. I read books all the time. I still had a full-time career that I was very successful in. Um, I was earning well into six figures for many years. I had a building business on the side. I was coaching at the same time. So I'd have three jobs. Like I've, so I've always worked super hard. But even part of that was still trying to run from it. But the resilience piece for me, eventually the road that led to where I'm now 
love like this, like an extreme growth in my personal development and emotional connection is so important to me that I just maintain it. I'm always looking for new things. I'm always doing new things. I'm so grateful and blessed now to deal with clients one-on-one. I mentor a lot of clients one-on-one all over the world. I do a lot of presentations for police. Last week I was delivering to our Australian Federal Police Agency, which is like the RCMP. And um, I had 240 of their senior leaders from their commissioner all the way down the top 240 senior leaders in that organisation in a room as part of a mental health, like a conference that was about leadership and they did a mental health impact part and I had 10 minutes to talk about my story. And there was another guy who is a current serving detective superintendent. Did He told his story before me. He was quite emotional. His stuff's pretty raw. It's pretty new. Halfway through that presentation, I just thought, no way am I doing the presentation I came here to do, which was my story. Because I go, they can look up my story anywhere. Mm. So I actually, when I stood up, I said, I'm not going to do what you've asked me to do. I'm actually, you need to hear some things. And I had a really, really robust, open discussion with them about why police need help, why they need to be emotionally vulnerable, connected to their people, why they need to give a shit. And one of the slides I had, the bottom line of it, I, I used, I said, leadership is about giving a shit about your people. That's all it is. And the response after that was amazing. The resilience part for me now comes from helping other people, but it comes from understanding, Janet, that anything that happens in your life that's impactful and difficult, you can recover from. Mm. If you still are breathing, then there's an opportunity to be resilient and recover. But resilience to me isn't something you're born with or not. Resilience is a skill like baseball or hockey is a skill, like driving a car is a skill, like whatever is a skill. Resilience comes from practicing resilient behavior, from not falling into the negative emotion and the drama and the impact, and from being willing to be emotionally vulnerable and get help. Because everybody goes through their shit, but we all think we're the only ones. Yeah. And it sounds like the breakthrough moment from what you just told me when you were meeting with that psychiatrist and he he flat out told you that you had PTSD. And you know, the fact that you started slowly coming to terms with your emotions and honesty about what you were feeling, what you were going through, those slowly chipped away at that hard exterior. Absolutely. And that to me is the thing that I just want to touch really briefly. I've, I talk about a thing I call the 95-5 alpha male rule. And it's for, it's for alpha personalities, women as well, right? But if I call it the 95-5 alpha personality rule, it doesn't sound as impactful. So the 95-5 rule for me for alpha males, for men, is 95% of the time, you're a loving, nurturing, connected, emotional human being. 5% of the time, you do whatever you have to do to make sure the people you love and other people who can't protect themselves are protected. This is a very melodramatic way to put it. But I get 95% of the time, you're loving, connected. 5% of the time, you will break someone's arm, do whatever you have to do, be as violent as you need to be to stop someone else who's enacting violence on a victim. But we look at alpha personalities as men. It seems to be this pinnacle that we drive towards of being a tough, unemotional guy who doesn't cry, being a tough, unemotional person who, who you know, really is just very stoic and doesn't show any emotion. And I just think that's bullshit. And for me, the PTSD thing gave me the, it gave me the reason I was the way I was. So I started to sort of understand over many years, I had, I had broken parts, I wasn't a broken person. Mm-hmm. And you've got to remember as, as you, you were being similar age to me, 
like I'm 49 years of age now, there was no internet in 2001 and 2002 that I could sit down on my laptop or my iPad and Google PTSD and watch 100 videos of police like me telling their story that I'd be like, oh, wow, this is normal. There was nothing. So I never knew anyone who'd had PTSD. I'd never heard of it for police officers. So I absolutely felt like I was just the one in a million weak coward who shouldn't have been a cop. Now, the irony is the very vulnerability I was terrified of is what gives me the most strength. Because these days, I'm a far, far more emotionally vulnerable and loving and caring man, but I'm also far more confident and courageous and tough that these days I'd be far more comfortable if I walked down the street and there was a, a man, you know, beating up his wife or his girlfriend that I would absolutely step in, but very calmly and go, hey, mate, like, we don't do that. I wouldn't have the fear that would drive a violent, angry response. I would be willing to step in and go, hey, no, we're not, that's, that's not on. And if he became violent, then I would escalate and handle that. And I'm not, because that's the guy I want to be now. Mm -hmm. I want to be a super emotionally connected man who now, instead of being the guy who's out there as the pinnacle of the emotionally stunted moron, vulnerability doesn't drive any fear in me anymore. So as I'm coming on to talk about my story so openly, I have no, no nerves, no anxiety, no fear. If I stand in front of 240 of my senior police in our country, I have no fear. I have a normal level of nerves. Like I go, oh, I've got to talk in front of 250 people. But then my passion to have an impact and a difference, then I just ignore that. And that all comes out of the willingness to be vulnerable. So the vulnerability and the honesty, you think, are really what propel the resilience in your case, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It, because vulnerability means your willingness to look at what doesn't work and change it. And that's what resilience is. To me, resilience is the ability to get up when you get knocked out. Mm -hmm. Resilience is the ability to be able to look at your life and take responsibility for whatever's occurred. Because understand, until you'll take responsibility and ownership of whatever is going on, then you're probably not going to recover from it because that drives resilience. I have to agree with you 100% on that. I think, you know, we're, we're all given uh, challenging times in our lives, but it's what you do with that that counts. It's, you know, what Definitely. you do with your new platform, how you might be able to help somebody else or just show people how you're even helping yourself, be a role model. I know that's not easy for everybody, but it does present an opportunity to people. And definitely, Janet, the thing for me, if you had children, then that's not an opportunity, that's a responsibility to teach your kids how to deal better. Because for generations and generations, and I believe at, at, at our age, we're the first generation who's starting to get this information to understand how to be better parents, mm -hmm. to understand the emotional impact of what we do. My mum and dad, who are now 73, I, they were just going by what they were taught by their parents. And their parents, their parents, and their parents, their parents. And it just rolls back all the way through human history. And it's been, and that wasn't a great place to live 100 years ago. Mm. It was like worrying about whether your mood and your, your actions impacted little Johnny's emotions when you don't know whether you're going to have money to put food on the table mm. or whether your children are going to die of smallpox isn't a huge priority. But in today's society where we are living in the best time that's ever been in humanity, we have, there's more financial abundance there's more opportunity. You can run a business from your mobile phone. There's endless amounts of free information on the internet about every topic that you want. We are definitely moving towards a better society in the way we treat each other. If we look at it statistically, this is the best time in human history. Yet we have the highest incidence of depression and suicide. Mm. 
and sexual predation and crime and all sorts of things because everybody's waiting for someone else to do something. And it starts in your own house. It starts in your own home. And I just think that's so important. And that comes down to you and I and every other parent on the planet to be better versions of ourselves so the next generation doesn't have the same dramas that we have had. Yeah. And I think it's just simply that. Can we talk a bit about the Strong Life Project? Sure. So tell me about that. Tell me uh, who your target audience is. What's the main message that you're delivering? The message is easy because STRONG is an acronym for living with strength, tenacity, uh, resilience, optimism, nurturing, and generosity. And to me, when I go through that... Yeah, thank you. It took me a little while to come up with that. I like that. But to me, it's the strength to be the best person that you can be everywhere in your life. The strength to be, for me, the best dad. For you, I don't know if you have children, but as the best mum, as the best wife, but as the best person. But it's the strength to be the best person first, then man, dad, husband, all other identities. But then the tenacity to be able to find a way around the tough things in your life and work out solutions. The tenacity to get what you want. And not, you know, that can be financially and whatever, but tenacity to me is a positive thing where it's always a positive outcome for the people involved. Resilience, obviously, we've talked about, which is get up when you get knocked down. Optimism, obviously, to know things always get better. Nothing from this second forward is predetermined in our lives. And if we believe it's going to be horrible, it will be. And if you believe it's going to be amazing, then there's a much greater chance of that occurring. Then N is nurturing of yourself and then nurturing everybody else. And then generosity is of you, yourself, time, impact, emotional connection, money, whatever. Because I go, if we live with strength, tenacity, resilience, optimism, nurturing and generosity, it's a pretty good plan for life. Mm. You know, I've written my book, The Dark Companion. I've got three other books written that I'm in the process of publishing. That are, One's how to be a great divorced dad. One's about uh, alpha personalities and how to deal in their lives best. And one is about youth resilience. So teenage, especially teenage boys, but teenage boys and girls, teaching them about resilience and how to take control of their lives. The, I've done nearly 1,300 daily podcasts that are 10 minutes each. So I do one of them every day, um, which is the Strong Life Project podcast. You can find on any podcast app. I do a lot of stuff around leadership and culture with corporate clients. I do a lot of stuff around critical stress training for police departments. I've got such a wide and varied experience. I, deal, I do one-on-one mentoring with corporate executives, athletes, business owners, police and military people. Like for anyone to reach out to me, my email address is sean, S-H-A-U-N, at thatstronglifeproject.com. Send me an email. So happy to talk to them. But if they don't reach out to me because I'm not their guy and I get that, don't just sit back and wait for things to change in their life. The message for me of the Strong Life Project is get off your ass and change your situation. Mm. There is no one else coming. Nobody's going to change it for you. Nobody's going to do the work for you. It is totally up to you. And there's nothing simpler than that. We are all the masters of our own destiny. So if your life is really shit at the moment, that's because you've chosen to stay where you are. I just don't think there's a simpler message than that. Well, I really enjoyed that conversation and I hope you did too. I want to thank Sean O'Gorman for taking the time to speak with me. To learn more about him, go to thestronglifeproject.com and the same name on social media. Thanks everyone for listening in. 
I love hearing from you, so please drop me a line at info at resilientpeople.ca. If you or someone you know has lived through a major life challenge, found a purpose from it, and now helps others to be resilient too, then I'd love to have you on the show as a guest. Go to resilientpeople.ca and fill out the form on the contact page. Resilient People is produced by me, Janet Fanaki, with the theme song, Sundays by Arlamar. Follow and leave a nice review for the show wherever you listen. I appreciate all of you and thank you again for listening to Resilient People. Till next time, I'm Janet Fanaki. Bye for now.